Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. We're talking this morning with Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. Keaton is covering a federal trial that could affect Oklahoma's ability to carry out executions. Keaton, why do death row prisoners believe Oklahoma's execution process is unconstitutional? Yeah, their argument centers around the first drug that the state uses to carry out executions, midazolam. They they essentially argue that it doesn't effectively render the person who's being executed unconscious and also causes fluid to build up in the lungs that makes it feel like they're uh, drowning and and essentially that constitutes cruel and unusual punishment is their argument. And what what kind of evidence do they have to support that allegation? So Oklahoma resumed executions last October after a six-year moratorium. In the first of the first two executions that the state carried out, the autopsy reports have been released, and in those autopsy reports, they found pulmonary edema, uh, which is essentially fluid building up in the lungs. Their lungs weighed much more than an average person's. Um, so there's evidence there that suggests that fluid does build up in the lungs after this drug is administered. The main question is, will they feel it? Or will they be conscious enough to experience that pain? How have state officials responded to that information? State officials have said that the dose they use, the amount of midazolam they're administering, it's, it's very high, and they say it will render the person who's being executed unconscious in 30 to 45 seconds. And afterwards, there's no chance they could feel pain. Um, So I don't think they disagree that it would cause pain if they were unconscious, but they're saying, yes, the drug is effective. They're they're not going to feel anything. Okay. Now, Oklahoma has not always used midazolam in executions, right? Correct. Previously, they used pentobarbital, which is FDA approved and used by the federal government in their execution protocol, but companies became reluctant to supply states with execution drugs, um, and they had to switch over to midazolam. Now, Oklahoma, you mentioned a six-year moratorium, um, really because of the questions about the process, and uh, that moratorium was lifted, and even with these questions and this trial pending, executions have proceeded. Why haven't they just kept them on hold until this is resolved? Yeah, so a federal judge last August removed six prisoners from the trial because they failed to list an alternative execution method. Uh, Some people on the lawsuit listed firing squad or a different version of the lethal injection. Uh, The folks who have been executed declined to list that alternate method. They most of them cited religious reasons, like because of my religious beliefs, I shouldn't be required to list an alternative method. And they were removed from the lawsuit. And that's when the state attorney general, John O'Connor, decided to seek execution dates and they were granted. Okay. Now this uh, federal lawsuit was filed well before the state resumed execution. So will this new evidence from those couple of executions you mentioned, the 
fluid in the lungs and so forth. Is that evidence uh, something that can be presented in this trial? It definitely is. Both sides, the the plaintiffs, uh, prisoners who are challenging the method and the state, have had witnesses at, at each of the executions. There's been four since the state resumed them back in October. So they will they will present evidence of what they saw, and certainly I would expect the autopsy reports that have been completed to to be presented in evidence and, and considered by the court. Okay, now if the plaintiffs, the, the prisoners in this case, prevail in this lawsuit uh, and the judge sides with them, what happens? So it will go through the appeals process. The state will likely appeal to the, to the Tenth Circuit in Denver, and then that could ultimately end up at the Supreme Court. Ultimately, if that ruling stands, the state is going to be kind of back to the drawing board as far as how are we going to carry out executions. Based on the current political climate here, I wouldn't expect much support for ending executions altogether. It will likely be a question of, of how are we going to carry it out. And we've seen states such as Alabama pursue nitrogen gas executions, which Oklahoma also considered, but later backed away from because of supply concerns. And also firing squad is another option authorized by the state constitution. So it will be a question of what's the method and how is the state going to come up with a protocol for it. Okay, and what's the timeline on the trial? How long do we think this is going to last? We're looking at about a week, uh, give or take. Okay, well, thanks, Keaton. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. You can read all his work at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment, I'm talking to Rebecca Nahara, who covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. Rebecca has been covering evictions and uh, a moratorium that was on those for a while during COVID. Rebecca, in your last story about rental assistance, you explained that the two organizations that allocated the most funds to help Oklahomans uh, stay in their houses, both had backlogs of thousands of applications. Has anything changed over the last few months? Um, so Community Cares Partners is the organization that was allocated the most um, money to help people stay in their houses. Um, they had actually closed for six weeks uh, last fall in order to cap- catch up on a 13,000 application backlog. Um, and when they reopened in mid-October, they actually got um, 2,000 applications within the first 24 hours. And uh, now the backlog is over 34,000. So um, it's really hard for these organizations to catch up. And uh, Restore Hope is another organization. Uh, they had a backlog of nine to 10,000 um, back in September when I last wrote a story. And now they're about at 10,000 as well. And they actually close their applications in January and don't know when they're going to reopen just so they can catch up on this backlog. Wow. Now, the federal eviction moratorium ended uh, shortly before your last update on this story. Would, has the eviction rate increased since then? Um, I would say so. More than 6,400 evictions have been carried out since August, which is when the moratorium ended. Um, this past January had a 19% higher eviction rate than last January. Uh, now that that moratorium is lifted, uh, some more people are not able to stay in their homes anymore. So what are, you mentioned the backlog, what are some of the other challenges these organizations are facing? Right. Um, 
Well, to start, some people are uh, reapplying uh, with Community Cares. Their uh, platform is kind of built to overlook those sort of because people are trying to jump the line. Everyone is an emergency situation is what both of these organizations are telling me. So they try not to prioritize um, these applications and uh, push people forward. You know, everyone is in an emergency situation, so they're just trying to uh, get through it in the order that it comes in. So some of these applications are duplicates, which just adds to the backlog. Um, some other challenges is just, you know, there are people that aren't tech savvy. And a lot of this was done, um, you know, strictly online. Um, so some of the things that these organizations have done is partnered with other organizations to meet with people in person uh, to kind of help them get through this process. Um, but that's also challenging, right, because you have to bring proper documentation and things like that. Um, and they've also set up call centers. Um, community cares used to be strictly done through email, but now you can actually talk to people on the phone, uh, which has helped a lot of people, but also adds to the backlog, right? Because more people are needing help. Well, and as you mentioned, everybody who's involved in this is in an emergency situation. And the organizations that are there to help have stopped taking applications so they can get caught up on these huge backlogs uh, of people who are already in line. What happens to the people who don't get help fast enough? Right. Um, unfortunately, you know, because the backlog is so big, not everyone gets helped in time. So they do get evicted. They do lose everything. Um, but the, both organizations ask that, you know, you contact someone wherever you applied, whether it be Restore Hope or Community Cares. Um, let them know that, hey, I'm evicted. I, I'm losing everything. And they'll help you with um, rehoming. Of course, they don't want you to get evicted. Um, but in the chance that you are, um, they'll pay your back rent and then they'll pay up to three months of rent forward um, on a new place once you are rehomed. Or they'll help you get in uh, contact with other organizations who can help you find a new place to stay. Okay. Did you talk to any tenants? What are they telling you? Yeah, it's kind of mixed messaging. Um, I met a woman who was evicted before she got help um, and things were not good for her. I met her in her hotel room and uh, she had to donate plasma just to be able to stay in her motel like each day, just barely getting by. Um, I met another woman. I went to evictions court and talked with some people outside who were waiting. And um, I met a woman who got pregnant during COVID and took off of work and um, is afraid to go back. Her She has her seven-month-old daughter at home and her husband's working, but because there's not two sources of income coming in, they've fallen behind. And... Um, They've applied for rental assistance and have been approved, but they still haven't gotten their check. And now they're afraid that they're going to be evicted. And um, they're telling me, you know, landlords aren't as patient as they used to be because it takes a long time. Uh, the wait times to get seen with community cares, it's uh, 10 to 12 weeks. So almost three months before your application is even seen. And landlords have bills to pay, too. So who wants to wait three months whenever you can have some other tenants who are ready with money to go? So... Sure. And this is not uh, localized to any one part of the state. Is it a statewide problem? Or are there hot pockets? Yeah. Um, well, Tulsa County and Oklahoma County are definitely, you know, up there with eviction rates, but it's a statewide issue. Um, there's an estimated 76,000 households behind on rent right now and um, about $133 million in debt statewide um, as far as back rent goes. 
Wow, huge problem. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca Nahara covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. You can see all her work at oklahomawatch.org. In this segment, I'm talking to Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. He's been keeping an eye on some voting rights bills as the legislative session has gotten underway this month. Trevor, can you start by talking about what's really at stake here? Yeah, so after the 2020 election, there was obviously a lot of concerns about both election security and election access across the country. Oklahoma was no um, exception to that. Um, you know, to be clear, there was no evidence of any type of widespread fraud here in Oklahoma, and our um, election secretary has you know, said that repeatedly. But a number of lawmakers are looking to either put, put restrictions, um, put reviews, while other lawmakers are looking to open up voting right now. How did Oklahoma respond to election concerns last year? Yeah, so we saw a lot of Republican-led states kind of clamped down on voting, uh, voting laws and access and things like that. Um, Oklahoma lawmakers went in the other direction. Um, one of the major things, really the only major thing that was passed was expanding voting hours um, for absentee voting um, for presidential elections. Um, it, was a, it was a minor bill, but, you know, it still showed that Oklahoma was going in a direction that was countered to many other states. There are a number of proposals out there this year, though, aren't there? Yeah, I did a review, and there's something like 75 uh, voting-related bills that are up for um, debate this session. Not all of them will be heard, um, but, you know, uh, uh, about a half of them, you know, expand access. Another half, you know, restrict access or just, just things like moving dates or um, changing how or when elections are going to hold. Um, but I found that most of the ones that expand access were brought by Democrats. What are some of the bills that have already been heard? Yeah, so one of so the law, the legislature is obviously underway, and um, they've started to hear some of the bills. One of the big bills that they've heard that relates to voting is a proposal that would um, ask voters to change the state's constitution to put a provision requiring um, a voter ID to vote. Now, Oklahoma has a state statutory law already, but this would elevate it to constitutional, which would enhance some more protections. And what are some of the reasons behind that? Yeah, so Senator Treat is running that bill, and he has said that one of his reasons is trying to prevent, preemptively prevent federal overreach. You know, there's been um, federal um, you know, proposals to change election laws. None of those has passed, but you know, his argument is that he wants to safeguard elections before, you know, federal law could change how Oklahoma laws play out. Uh, a treats bill is not the only one that has that thinking behind it, is it? Yeah, that's correct. There's a number of, of bills out there that kind of try to tackle what they call federal overreach. Um, there's one bill that advanced out of the House committee last week. Now, this one says that if the federal government makes laws that goes against Oklahoma election laws, those laws will only be followed during separately held federal elections. So state elections could still be held however the state law um, dictates. Okay, and what about the bills that would expand voting access, make it easier to get to get a vote cast? Yeah, so those bills haven't had a great start so far. Um, there's one bill that would provide notaries in um, higher education facilities 
Um, these are needed because absentee ballots need to be notarized. Um, if you're mailing them in, that bill did not get heard. There is another bill that would clarify when felons' voting rights are restored. That bill did not make it out of committee either. All right, and there's more to come, isn't there? Yeah, so there's a couple big uh, bills scheduled for this week and next week. One of them that we're closely watching is one that would require all voters to re-register to vote after 2023 and then provide things like their um, U.S. citizen proof, voter ID, other things that a lot of opponents say would be a big burden for people to re-register to vote. All right. Well, thanks, Trevor. I've been talking to Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for us at Oklahoma Watch. You can read all of his work and all of our investigative reporting at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.